This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form. Written by, performed by, and produced by me, Brad Lawrence, still, still, in my tiny little side room in my Brooklyn apartment. Uh, during just the weirdest days of my lifetime, uh, and some of the hardest uh, for all of us. And I hope that Maxine's adventures have been bringing uh, all of you, everyone who's listening, some amount of escape and a little depressurization as we all sort of contend with these things. Uh, And in that spirit, I thank you for coming back and for uh, living Maxine's story with me. Um, So let's move on to today's episode, shall we? So welcome to Maxine and the Planets Unknown, episode 21, chapters 47 and 48. Sumner and Laurent stood and stared at the alien ship and said nothing. It occurred to Sumner that if they were on the right path, His adopted daughter was the first human being to encounter evidence of an alien intelligence. There was a terror and an exhilaration to this idea that was muted only by his disbelief at what he was seeing and his own default reserve. They had found so much life in the galaxy humanity had, but wherever they looked, they never found anything like themselves. No builders, no makers. The original question had been, is there life out there? That had been answered by long-range telescopes and color spectrum analysis long before anyone set foot on a planet outside of the solar system. From there, complex life had been discovered to be so abundant that, at first, intelligence had seemed like only a matter of time. Or artifacts of an intelligence, or a radio signal, or a society much less evolved, but still with a culture or art or something. But there had been nothing. This had been true for so long that it was the kind of abstract question that a pragmatist like Sumner Gray would never waste much time on. It was like the notion of God or an afterlife. Sure, these things might exist, but they had no bearing on the things that Sumner had to get done each day. So what was the point of speculating? Hell, if there was an afterlife, he was definitely going to find out sooner or later. The other two, God and an alien civilization, well, he would deal with that should either ever deign to make an in-person appearance. But here they were, or at least what was left of them hanging half out of the cave wall, a ship. It was unlike any ship Sumner had ever seen or conceived of, but it was still, for its great, hulking, pregnant roundness, a thing that had been made, machined, and assembled. It was clearly the deliberate work of many sentient creatures, turning their unimaginably alien hands together toward a common goal that being to die on this weird and treacherous planet, apparently. It looked as distinct from the natural and organic things around it as it looked foreign from anything humanity might create. There was a brief glance at the big questions. Who were they? What did they look like? 
Why build this and come here? Were they like us? But this kind of inquiry hung as shapeless and ill-fitting on the sheriff as a ball gown might. He just felt unqualified and dumb in the face of it. This was for someone else to see and understand. He was not stupid and he was not incurious, but he did know his limitations. Sumner could ask those questions, but he'd never be able to answer them, or even know how to start looking for the answers. That was what scientists and philosophers and historians were for, or someone like Maxine, in fact. Maxine was young, and she was maddeningly opaque much of the time. But he could already see the spark of mental acquisitiveness in her that told him she would attain an understanding, a perspective on life in the galaxy that he could only marvel at from the sidelines. Had she seen this? Had she been here? Were they too late? The weight of this almost crushed him. The loss of the most precious thing in the world to him could also mean the loss of everyone in the Contiki, and also humankind's first ever encounter with an alien intelligence. So much riding on a girl who had already had such a tumultuous run of it. Laurent was feeling the smallness of all the losses and rages and petty vengeances of her life. It was good. It was what she had come for. The pain and conflict of her youth had seemed so all-encompassing, a thing that surrounded her like a smothering blanket. To get out from under that blanket, she had left home and joined up with an outfit that would send her to the farthest reaches of the galaxy, all to feel like there was something, somewhere, more than that. This was what success looked like. The universe was now twice as large as she thought it was when she first went running into it. She felt still, quiet, for maybe the first time ever, a moment's peace. It wouldn't last, she knew that. This threw everything up in the air, but it would all have to come crashing back down on her eventually. But that was five minutes from now, or an hour, or tomorrow, or she'd be dead before she had to reckon with any of it. For right this moment, there was just this undeniable new reality. And it was good. Then, something occurred to her. Do you think this is what's responsible for all this? For what is happening to us? Sumner shrugged. We don't know that anything is responsible, as it were. I mean, we don't know anything is doing any of this deliberately. Sandoval seemed to think it was like a natural defense system, like your body's own immunity to a virus. That's not a conscious thing. And Sandoval wasn't even sure about that. She said herself she was just speculating. Laurent looked back at the long-dead ship. So, the alternative being that this planet just really, really sucks. Sumner allowed himself a tight-lipped smile. Yeah, I suppose so. The smile fell away. A more immediate question is, did Maxine go in there somehow? And is that where she is now? There was a moment's silence, and then something began to happen. 
There were suddenly lights in the cave. It took the two of them a long second to understand what they were seeing as all around them the bioluminescent worms unfolded their wings and let forth their white glow. At first, it was just in their immediate vicinity, but then, as they stared in mixed wonder and apprehension, worms began to illuminate in a rippling line that led from where they were standing, along the wall opposite where the ship was hanging, over crystals and outcrops, and eventually to another passage set low into the opposite wall. Then, the bioluminescent glow began to ebb and swell in a wave pattern, that started from the two humans' position and ran until it reached that distant entrance, and then into the corridor beyond. Without looking at Sumner, Laurent said, Yeah, I'm pretty sure this shit's deliberate. Chapter 48 Maxine moved through the sodden ruin of Seville, Spain, so swamped in horror and despair that she found herself unable to speak. Half the city was underwater, and the other half was on fire. At the water's edge were the people who had been left bereft and traumatized to the point of mindlessly wandering among the corpses, hoping to find their loved ones, perhaps, but more likely, hoping to join them. Maxine was among them. She slogged through the gray and brown water with a zombie-like shuffle. It was only ankle-deep, but she still couldn't see the cobblestones under her feet. Her mouth hung slightly open. Her throat clicked. Her eyes were absorbing everything, seeing it all. But she was only processing the edges of the thing. The only fortunate thing was that she had not happened upon a mirror or even an intact pane of glass. She was still wearing the body of Selina Simon, and if she'd caught a reflection of herself in that state, in this place, likely madness would have been the only possible place to go. She'd been forced into the role of ghastly tourist by Mr. Humphreys. He was there somewhere, but he seemed to be keeping his distance letting her take it all in. In 2156, changes to Earth's climate brought about a series of freak hurricanes that battered the western coasts of Spain and France. This brought on rapidly fluctuating changes in air pressure systems that had been otherwise stable for millennia. This, in turn, set off a little-known but very much active fault line in the Alberan Sea. The ensuing megaquake dropped much of Andalusia into the water. The Penabetica mountain range was gone, as was much of the southern end of the Subetica range. They took with them the cities of Malaga, Granada, Gibraltar, and Cadiz. The human death toll would eventually come in at 6,850,323 and the Baetic Depression, as geologists like to call the alluvial plain that formed a green-carpeted processional right up to the doorstep of Seville, one of the most beautiful and storied cities in history, turned into a great brown bay of bodies and debris.
It was at the edge of this bay that Maxine found herself now. There was a middle-aged man wearing a suit jacket and tie over underwear and socks. Standing on a stoop just above the water, he stared at the lapping flood like if he looked hard enough and long enough, he would understand what he was seeing. An old couple stood in an open cellar, which was three-quarters submerged, held each other, and wept. A body floated by, being carried in herky-jerky fashion by the uneven and uncertain currents of water that was rushing to fill every open egress of this new terrain. It was impossible to tell the body's age or gender, just that it had been in the water for a very long time. Maxine wandered glassy-eyed and helpless. She witnessed it all, but understood none of it. What finally brought her to a stop was the mother with her child. The mother was surrounded by emergency workers, the first Maxine had seen, who had come to the end of all possible interventions. They stood there pathetically as the woman dressed in the business casual and sensible shoes of an up-and-coming corporate professional, now filthy and ragged, realized that they had stopped trying, and that there was nothing left to try. There had been just a tiny shard of hope that she had been holding on to, and now that shard gutted her straight down the middle. It was made all the more cruel by the pitying stares of the people who had been the source of that vain hope. Her face went from pressed anticipation to a wordless scream of agony in an instant, as the realization of her child's irretrievable loss buckled her knees and brought her down in a heap over the boy's body. Maxine stared. The emergency workers tried not to stare. Then, Maxine began to weep. She stood right where she was, raised a hand to her face, and sobbed. None of this was real. It was a story. It made its home in the imagination of Marco Villanueva, 36 years old, father of two, great-great-grandson of a woman named Isabella Barquella, who lost her first child and first husband in the Andalusia quake disaster. She had later remarried, and with her second husband and fellow quake survivor, Giancarlo Villanueva had two children. This kicked off the lineage that would inherit her tragedy as family lore. It would come to rest in Marco, who would have it from old writings and incomplete VRs and audio recordings and interviews conducted with the survivors of the disaster that were still accessible via the Omninet this very day. And so all of it was real in the sense that all of these things had happened. But they'd all been turned over and over and over and rewritten and recast many times in the minds of each person between Isabella and Marco. This meant that the version in Marco's head was made up just as much of the patches his imagination had layered over the holes and inconsistencies in the varying accounts as it was of data and first-hand reporting. So much so that those patches were now as much a part of the living narrative as any of the rest. But none of that had any effect on the raw, gut-searing pain Maxine felt while watching Isabella's back heave and curl and collapse as she lay forward clutching her son's corpse. Because this is what people do with stories. They make them 
a part of themselves and their reality in such a way that they are inseparable from that reality and from those selves. The process of story is more vivid in many ways than that of memory or even actually living through something the first time because this is how we transform facts into truth. If the fact is death, truth is the story we tell that makes living with death possible. So, not real is the wrong way to put it. It was not fact. But it was real just as much as Maxine sharing Isabella's grief in that moment was real. It was true, that grief. It was the truth that Isabella was just beginning to live with now. And it was the story that Mr. Humphreys knew Maxine would need to tell herself in order to understand what came next. Now, Mr. Humphreys came to her. Miss Maxine, he said, and touched her arm. She wheeled toward him, her grief and horror instantly shifting to rage and disgust and hatred for the thing that had subjected her to this. Then everything was black. She was conscious, she was aware, and she was angry, but Seville and Isabella and the aftermath was all gone and she was in a formless place. Nothing happened for a long while, and as she floated there in the nothing, her rage began to cool into despair. Why? When she spoke, she suddenly had form. She looked down and saw her hands. They were still Selena Simon's hands, but she went on anyway. Why are you torturing me? Then Mr. Humphreys appeared. Torturing you? I have been under the impression that your people fancy themselves explorers. Didn't you yourself set out this very day to meet the neighbors? Oh, what neighbors I have shown you. Yes, you've shown me their death and their pain and their heartbreaks. This is what your kind are made of. Maxine was silent at this, so he went on. I hoped you would understand. I hoped you would understand this on your own. I am disappointed that after all you have seen, you still don't realize. You small, limited things. Death is all you are. Your lives end, and you have just enough awareness to know it, and that drives you. It drives you to chew your way through worlds, to consume all you come into contact with and turn every innocent thing toward the purpose of staving off what you know is coming. Everything you encounter has a purpose in your mind. Nothing just is because it happened, and it has a place in something larger than itself, and that is enough. No, everything is a resource, here to be turned into your desires. And the thing you desire most is to escape from death when death is the only thing you all have in common. You would think knowing that would make you treat the lives of others as preciously as you treat your own. Maxine struggled for a retort, 
what you came up with was weak. It's not all about death. It's not? Can your own planet support your numbers anymore? No. When that happens to any other animal, they die. They outgrow their habitat and they die. The habitat lives on, but not you. You destroy one planet and you move on to the next, just so you don't have to face collectively what you all must yield to individually. And everything you find is just there to serve your unrelenting spread. Maxine knew that this was what this had all been about. She thought of it and found the idea already in her head. At some point, through all the transitions, through all these journeys, all these lives and experiences and sensations it had given her, the exchange had begun to go both ways. She knew that the stuff that was her, her experiences and knowledge and desires, they now lived somewhere in this enormous mind standing in front of her, in its ridiculous cartoon disguise. Now she began to understand or become conscious of the fact that it was in her as well. She understood certain things that it had never said out loud. She just knew them. When? When had she become aware of these things? Was it when she glimpsed the global consciousness behind all of this the first time? Or had this been trickling into her the minute she landed on the planet? Maybe it was trickling into all of them. Not that it would matter because she also knew that it intended to kill them, as it had the others before. That was what came next. And she couldn't find a way to say, you're wrong, we're more than that. Something just up and crumbled inside of her. Jesus, shouldn't she be able to make a case for her own survival and for that of her people? Shouldn't she be angry that this thing that wore the face of her childhood friend would want to kill her and everyone she knew. But all she had was this crushing terror that he was right about all of it. This couldn't be what all of it amounted to. All the pain and all the grief and all the struggle, the centuries-long journey across the stars, all the dreaming and hoping it couldn't come down to this. Something saying, you're just a taker, and for that, I will end you. And having nothing, no defense of your own stupid life. She suddenly had a sense of her own inadequacy. She was the wrong person for this job. She had already been through a loss that had damaged her forever and stripped her of hope and light. Everything she brought to the table here was borrowed from somebody else. Somebody who still saw life as being full of possibilities. She was... She was a, just a... She was just a 15-year-old girl. She was a member of a hive. She was a living solar sail. She was a world builder. She was a broken 15-year-old girl. She was a mind on the wind. She was the hero of the stories. She was the witness. She was a 15-year-old girl, and making her be any of these other things was unfair. And that was what she knew about life, that it was unfair, that it could take anything and everything from you at any moment, and the timing was arbitrary. 
herself and everyone on the Contiki would be cut off mid-sentence regardless of age or ambition, and it would happen because life was unfair. Maybe if she wanted to blame herself, it was going to happen because she couldn't come up with an argument against it being unfair. But she could not find a case to make for herself or her fellows, and she couldn't find it because that case just didn't exist. She looked at Mr. Humphreys. I can't stop you, and I can't see a way of changing your mind, but I don't want to die like this. I don't want to die as someone else in some nowhere place in my brain or your brain or wherever this is. I want to be me again, and I want to cry. Maybe we don't deserve anything else, but the people on the ship do deserve one person to cry real tears for them. Mr. Humphreys nodded. He understood, and he was careful not to let the surprise of his own understanding show on his face. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.